So hi everyone and welcome to round two of the Inspire series. It's uh, absolutely fantastic that you're all joining us. Uh, hopefully you can hear me over the little bit of background music we've got from Bob Marley. Um, once you've logged on, if you can just say hello to each other on the uh, chat just so that you get used to use that functionality. It'll come in useful later and then um, we'll tell you a little bit more about polling and the order of events in, in a wee bit. But for now, what I'd like to do is bring uh, Pumi into the conversation and let, let Pumi do the, uh, the official intro. Pumi, over to you. Thanks, Colin. Welcome, everyone. I'm Pumelela Ndobo. I prefer you call me Pumi. Pumelela actually reminds me of when my mom would be upset with me. Uh, I'm part of the digital team under Brian Harding. As you know, our focus is app dev, data, automation, QA, and cloud. Today isn't about me or us as digital, though. It's about season two of the Inspire series. The first season was truly awesome, with great feedback from our staff and our customers. This season, we'll have some thought-provoking conversations with inspirational international leaders who will explore how they build business agility and reflect on leadership in an increasingly digital and volatile environment. This week, we're very fortunate to be hanging out with a remarkable global leader, India Gary Martin. She's a prominent executive coach, having led as MD and global COO, among others, JP Morgan. India is authentic, direct. She's an inspiring leader who'll speak to us about the importance of diversity for business, unconscious bias, and how executives can avoid pitfalls and deliver on a successful transformation strategy. You're welcome to post your questions or comments in the chat for our speaker. Thank you again for making the time today. Thanks, over to you, Colin. Thank you very much, Pumi. Thank you very much indeed. Um, India. Hi. I'm so excited that you've joined us today. I'm so pleased that you've joined us today, especially because I only learned a few days ago you're actually on holiday. Where are you? I am in the mountains of Maryland in the US, um, about one mile from Camp David, which is the, I'll say presidential instead of the president's, but presidential summer retreat. So really great up in the mountains trying to have some you know, some, some downtime. It's been a crazy year so far. Now, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, things that a lot of people, myself included, find actually quite difficult to talk about. Uh, we can't avoid uh, talking about and classifying people between their skin color, black and white. We can't avoid on this call using terms like racist and racism. And you are probably the person that I respect most who operates in this field. But I think you need to introduce yourself and give your backstory because at the moment, a lot of people might just simply say that, yep, you're black and you're female. So it's a good starting point, but there's a lot of depth to what you've been doing over the last couple of decades. Can we start um, back, I suppose, in your college days? Because this was something that I didn't realize about you is that you went to Spielman College and the whole structure um, of the Spielman College system. I thought that was fascinating in itself. Sure. So, um, I'll start at college then. So that's a long time ago. You're really testing me, you know, you're testing me. Um, so I went to school to, at a university called Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia in the US. 
Um, Spelman is what's called a historically black college university, HBCU, um, which meant that at my school, it was all black and also all female in my case. So I went to an all black, all female university. And um, that was partially driven by, so HBCUs came to prominence in the US because of segregation and because black people weren't allowed to go to schools that you know the white people went to. Um, and so there were 110 HBCUs in the United States um, that were formed to be able to, you know, obviously support the needs of black students who couldn't go to white universities. Um, they've survived, I think there are probably 90 or so left still. Um, but I went to Spelman primarily because um, Historically, I had a number of my family who went there. So I, I should say that I'm like 13th to go to the school first off. Um, and then secondly, um, it was a safe place for me. Um, I had a lot of options when I was going to university. I had other choices, you know, other places I could have gone, but that one was the one that felt safest for me. And so that's why I chose Spelman College. So that's where I, that was my start. And anything you want to talk about around HBCUs or any questions, I know that it's, all, it's often cha more challenging to understand for people who don't, haven't grown up in this space and understand the significance of HBCUs in American history. And then after uh, college and university, um, you then went where? So my first, my first job was at Morgan Stanley, um, and, and you will all be very excited to know that I was in tech when I started my career in investment banking, um, and I was actually a developer for the, for the beginning of my career. I changed, moved out of that. I found that was not for me. I tried. Um, but that's, that was, so I went to Morgan Stanley. I was there for about four years, um, and I had actually transitioned into very strangely commodities trading. So I left the tech space, but I was supporting commodities. So I got to know the business really, really well. I moved into commodities trading and moved into a marketing function and commodities. And um, then my boss at the time, Deutsche Bank at the time was starting its investment bank. This is 1994. Um, and he took like 30 people with him. And I was one of the 30 that went um, to Deutsche where I remained for the next almost 10 years. Um, and 10 years and three countries. So that's how I got to London, where I stayed for most of my corporate career, um, Frankfurt and Tokyo. Um, yeah, Tokyo, and during, the, during that 10 years. So I kind of spent time all around the globe um, then. And actually my first, my first work in South Africa, because that was a part of my territory. So I spent a lot of time in South Africa um, as a part of that. And it, that was, I guess, the mid-90s, 95, 96. Um, maybe a little bit later, 97-ish. So that was my kind of start into the, in Deutsche. I then went to Lehman Brothers. <laughs> Not sure that was the best idea, but went there. Um, and I was, at that time, again, I went back into tech. So I was a CIO for the lending businesses um, in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, so EMEA, um, which, was, which was interesting. Um, and you know what happened to Lehman. <laughs> so um, I... Yeah, Lehman was a was an interesting place, um, but it, I, I actually loved my time there. I think you know, funnily, it's probably one of my favorite places that I worked. But that's you know, that's another story. Um, and then I had a short stint at RBS, AB, and Amro when they were doing their merger. They recruited me to come and do that, so I actually did the merger for their equities business. Um, and then got recruited away to, to JP Morgan, which is where I ended my corporate career. So I kind of did the hop a lot. I wouldn't have done the middle. I probably would have never gotten to RBS and potentially not even JP Morgan had Lehman stayed afloat because I really enjoyed my time there. So that could have been, I could have been like a three, a three place person through the course of my career, but it was five um, and partially driven by the economics and some of the issues that were happening around the banking markets at the time. Okay. So that's my, that's my story till then. 
So and I think it was important to get that across because, you know, the quick summary is you worked in London and Frankfurt and Tokyo and Hong Kong in New York. I think you live in Washington now. You've been a lot of times down here into South Africa where we first met. Lots of different roles um, that you've had in lots of different organizations. I suppose quite a privileged background in many ways from the university that you went to. And that, that leads me on to wanting to ask you a question and everyone that's dialed in. I'm going to open this poll. Um, and it's anonymous. I really do want you to remember it is anonymous because the question is quite simple. At my workplace, white colleagues still have all of the advantages. Strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree and strongly disagree. And, and I want to put that question to you, India. As you've gone through um, that career, did you find or feel that white people had all of the advantages and to what level? Um, yes, to some extent. But I will say this, um, it was a very different thing. When I left the US, it felt very different. And I felt, felt that when I went to London, and London is like, you know, the kind of diverse capital, diversity capital of the world, frankly. But when I went, because I'd left the US fairly early in my career, I felt less limited by that. And though I, I still see it to be the case when I was in London, it was actually true when you went to the spaces I was in from a, from a Social perspective, very diverse. Corporate perspective, not so. Um, and I would say, yes, advantage, but advantage because of hiring as opposed to um, anything else. And that, you know, the numbers of people just weren't big enough for, for Black people or people of color to make any significant impact in those spaces. Um, and that started, you know, pretty low down the ranks, and, you know, when we hired people into the organizations. So, yes, I'd say to some extent that's the case and, and still remains to be. Let's, uh, let's end the poll and, and have a quick look and see what we've got on that. And then I'll uh, be able to go and show it. Let's share those results. Very interesting. Obviously, it's anonymous and um, we won't have any more detail of who's, who's voted what. It's split across the board. Wow. Yeah. Which in some ways is, is very disappointing, obviously, because what we would be hoping for is 100% of people saying strongly disagree. Mm. But I think that's a, we're a long way away from that for a variety of reasons, which you know. Um, it's, it, you know, I think that we're talking about systems of advantages that have been in place for decades and even centuries. So to think that we're going to shift that in the short time that, you know, you have the kind of born free population in South Africa and still, I mean, in a very crazy way, the stuff that's happening in America right now, to, to think it's going to solve quickly is, is when it took centuries to get here and decades to get here is a, is, is, doesn't make sense, right? So this is gonna take sustained energy to make the shifts. And until we start dismantling the systems, you know, when we talk about race and racism, um, I try to take people out of the equation because people behave in the container that, that's, that they live in and the systems are the containers. So what we have to look at is how we shift the systems. How do we change the things that will actually make it more equitable for people to participate and more equitable for people to even be able to walk in the door? And that goes even before you talk about hiring, um, hiring people into the job. You don't, you know, we're talking well before that. We're talking about making sure people have affordable healthcare, affordable housing, and decent, decent and affordable, not just what they can pay for, but decent housing, um, decent healthcare, decent education, all the things that will enable folks to be able to get there. So until you do that, it's great to focus on, you know, people hiring people from universities, but what about the people who didn't even get a chance to get there because we didn't do what we needed to do as a society to start? 
So when you talk about how you shift things, and if you want to see that change that you kind of, if, if you want to see those advantages not look like that, then you have to start much earlier. It's a societal issue that we need to fix in the first instance. Corporations are pushing against something that, um, that they can't absolutely influence in that way. They can to some extent, and that is about making different choices. But when we really get down to brass tacks, it's about those, the, the kind of basic human rights people should have to be able to live reasonably, to be able to be educated reasonably, and to have reasonable health care. And then you take a whole lot of people out of the equation when you don't ensure those things happen. Mm. That's something we're going to come on to in, in a minute, you know, this, this difference between equity and equality. Um, but there's something that, that's bothering me, and maybe you can help on the phrasing of this. If, if we go and look at people in the workforce, I think it's very easy to just to go binary and say, you're racist or you're not racist. And obviously, if you're not racist, that's good. And if you're racist, that's bad. But it's a lot more nuanced than that in reality, isn't it, India? I mean, a lot of the things that we do are fairly uh, unconscious to us and passive in terms of the way that these, these structures and the systems that you're talking about are created. It's not necessarily a deliberate that step that any individual at any level is actually taking. Is, is that something that um, you'd agree with? Yeah, I would say that, you know, um, and I'm just making this number up, right? I would say 80% of people are operating very unconsciously. You know, they're kind of just walking through life. And like, as I mentioned, um, you know, the container, people operate in the space that they know in the container that's always, always been there. So to challenge the container for no reason isn't human nature. <laughs> so you have to think about what are the things that would make me want to challenge this. Um, and if it's always been that way, if you were born into this and this is how it was, it's a really hard change to make. That's the first thing. Um, I think that when you talk about racism and race, somebody being racist and racism, it's really important to be able to distinguish between racial bias and racism. So racial bias is having a belief about a certain group of, group of people based on their race. So you may just think, I'm making this up, um, you may think that, that all young black men are dangerous. Okay, so that's, your, that's a bias because that's a belief that you have. Racism happens when that belief translates into action, right? So you see a young black man walking down the street and you cross the street. That's racist because your, your bias, your belief is, is translating into action. Um, so it's really important to, because people believe a lot of things, but it doesn't mean they necessarily act on them. So it's really important to distinguish between bias and actual racism because they're two different things. It's when yeah. you act on it that it's racism. Um, so I think that there's, there's some pretty fundamental things that we have to address when we think about what that might look like in the future and how we start to make those shifts from a, from a business perspective and in the workplace, as you were kind of asking. Um, I, so stop what, so I, think that, I think that makes it even harder though, doesn't it? Because if 80, 90% of people in the, in the workplace are you know, generally just nice people um, and they're operating with the container that they've been created from over their informative years and, and the way that the structures and systems are set up in schools, universities, and then actually in the workforce, it's very difficult to step outside of those containers and to really self-reflect and to understand that some of your behaviors and approaches are unnatural, you know, they're advantaging certain sets, whether that's mm -hmm. from a male-female perspective or an ageism perspective or a racism uh, perspective or a diversity perspective in general. It's extremely hard to do. And that, 
that makes it almost harder, almost insidious, because you don't realize that you're actually uh, doing these things. And then now you've got it on a sustained basis across large groups of people in the organization. It becomes even harder. Now, you, now in my experience, you can't change anything unless you have that fundamental realization that something's broken and you actually need to go and start to fix it. How, how do you start that journey? Because you're working with organizations across the globe to try to help them to go and um, bring diversity into their organizations. How do you, how, and I, I, and I just don't know how you do it because it's kind of, you know, it's so difficult getting people to change at the best of times, especially now we've got to have in an area where you're just not aware of it. So I think that people are aware because I, there's a really interesting um, awareness and action are two different things, right? So people are aware. Um, but don't necessarily take action. There's a great video by a woman called Jane Elliott. If you haven't seen her, anybody on the call, you should go and have a look at this YouTube video that she does. Um, she does a lot of YouTube, she does a lot of videos, but she's probably, I guess, she's probably in her late 70s now. And after the assassination of Martin Luther King, she was trying to explain to her third grade, third year three class, um, the racism and what it, how, how it showed up. And so she did this very famous exercise called Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes. And basically she had all the kids with brown eyes in the class discriminate against all the kids in the blue eyes, keep things from them, not give them things. It's a fascinating exercise. But she also did a wonderful video, but it's only about a minute long, where she's in an auditorium and the the whole auditorium is, is filled with white people. And she says, okay, anybody stand up who would like to be treated as black people are treated in our society? And nobody stood up. And she says, I don't think you heard the question. Everybody stand up who would like to be treated as black people are treated in our society. And she says, so what that means to me, because nobody stood up, is that you know what's happening, but you don't want it for you. So why is it okay for somebody else? Right? So people are aware. It's not a matter of awareness. It's not that people don't know. Um, so I don't, I think that's a, that one is important to, to capture. People know they're aware. I think the, the issue is folks don't know what to do. And there are a lot of people who really would engage if they understood how. And, you know, you have to respect the experiences people have and the lens that they come from. Because if somebody grew up in a homogenous community, say an all-white community, their kids go to white schools, they may go to a, a homogenous place of worship, maybe a homogenous, you know, job where everybody pretty much looks the same, then I'm not sure how they would understand my experience, right? Um, ex- but as a Black person, I have to have a level of bicultural competency that white people don't, which means I have to be able to walk in a world that wasn't necessarily built for me with a fluency that means I'm able to navigate. And so just, you know, when you talk about awareness and when you talk about people knowing and understanding, the work that I do is about helping people to get to the emotional connectivity because it's really hard. If you don't know any black people, never seen any before, I mean, really don't have relationships or with people of color, then it's really hard to be able to step into that. There's no question about that, right? So the work that I'm doing is around how you, um, how you educate people, because a part of the issue is folks don't understand other people's experience, right? But in the work that I do with, with especially CEOs and their leadership teams is to get them to make the emotional connection. Because if you layer on top of the kind of homogenous stuff that people have their own causes, then, it's a, then it can be even more of a challenge. Um, I'm sorry, I have a child who's pouring cereal in the background that I'm getting ready to kill, um, that I'm getting ready to literally murder, who I told to leave because I'm on a call. Um, so, more the merrier. So, yeah, she might come walking by, dogs might come flying by. Um, 
Jane is Jane Elliott, um, Elza. It's J-A-N-E Elliott. Um, so see that's, see, that's my American accent. See, for you, Jean, it might have sounded like Jean, but it's my American accent. So it's Jane, J-A-N-E. Um, sorry, I was going back to what I said, but was distracted by a child and other things. Um, so I was talking about educating people, right? You have to emotionally connect to this stuff. And when you, I was talking about layering on the fact that everybody has their causes. So like my cause is I'm very heavily into women and children and educational equity. That's one of my big things. Um, but your cause might be the Cancer Foundation, hers, the Heart Foundation, his, the whatever it might be. And so like if I'm watching television and I see a, a PETA commercial, which is PETA is the, um, the animal rights people. Um, I look at it and I go, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But then I go back to what I'm doing. Cause yeah, I, I, it's sad, but that's what I go back to. So people see a black man being killed on television and they go, oh my God, that is horrific. And they go back to whatever is important to them. Right. It's not that people don't think it's horrific. It's that there's no emotional connection for them. And it's so far removed from what they experience that, you know, they see it as something horrible, but this big thing that's that people can't manage or they don't know how to engage in or don't know what to say because you don't want to offend. Um, and if we're going to result, if we're going to resolve any of that, we have to be able to have the conversations. So my work is in, in equipping people to be able to have the conversations. First through history, because our history is not told collectively. It's told in a very kind of one singular fashion. It's tunnel vision around the folks who, who kind of were in control. So when you think about what the historical context of what our children are taught, history, that they would, the history they would need to really know to be able to navigate, they're never taught. And it's true of adults too. So you can't, I don't have the, again, I don't have the expectation that people who were taught the school that I learned in history would have any understanding of my history because it is not told in that context. So I'll stop there for a second. So how do you go through that process, this emotional connection, you know, you, this empathy so that people stop projecting their view as, as they look at others and can sit back and start to understand the context of, of where they've come from you know, the, the difficulties that they've had, or even if it isn't from a particularly difficult background, mm. just their backgrounds and their context to build up that relationship, that trust that you need, you know, to go forward. And I like this quote, I've not read the book, I've got to be honest, but it's by the um, author of White Fragility, D'Angelo. He points out white people who see themselves as liberal can be the hardest, the most offensive, the most resistant, the most arrogant in their certitude that it's not them. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you how do you start people on that journey? By the way, as you uh, think about answering that, if you do want to ask, uh, ask questions on the audience side of things, just post it um, in the Q&A side of things and we'll pick it up for you. So, India, how how do you get people to start, you know, to be willing to step out and to go down this journey and exploring it and with all of the, um, I suppose, the fear and the uncertainty that it goes and creates against the knowledge as well sometimes that it's possibly is this actually good work? Is this beneficial for the organization? Is this where I should be spending my time? Yeah. Um, so the thing is, if you have black employees or any employees of color full stop, it's, 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 worth, it's worth your time because this is the thing. I talked about us having a bicultural comp competency. We're taught how to navigate from birth, essentially. Like we're taught how to navigate again in a world that was not shaped or built for us. And, peop and, you, and people may think, oh, well, you know, my colleague so-and-so is fine because they're not saying anything. People don't talk about things that are that, are that 
fraught. I'll, I'll just say, you know, race is a very fraught issue with a whole bunch of things. People don't tend to talk about things that are tied to their livelihoods. So I'm not going to, in, a, in my corporate environment, I did because I was at a senior level and I could, but, you know, the more junior you are, the more difficult it is to actually speak out against something that um, people, A, don't want to face. We can't talk about it societally. So how do we expect folks to be able to talk about it inside of corporations when we can't have the conversations outside of corporations where arguably it would be um, easier to have because you don't have some of the same kind of constraints and liability perhaps. Um, and so people aren't going to talk about things that are tied to their livelihood. I, you know, and I didn't for a long time. I experienced a lot of things that I didn't talk about. Um, I'm sorry. Can you give me your question again? <laughs> See, I went on a tangent. No, but, it's absolutely fine. But it's, so, so that's the, the problem. But how do you go and get the C-suite um, to start thinking about this? So we know that they have to. They should. It must have. If you want a diverse, and we know that diverse yeah. workforces are much uh, better from everything from innovation yeah. to efficiency. And yeah, it's okay. So a good thing to get that ball rolling. Let me do no, let me do no preamble and give you the go straight to the, to the answer <laughs> so I don't go losing myself. Um, so this is the thing. It is about, as I talked about, emotional connectivity. So like in the coursework that I do, I do this timeline, for example, that shows 2020. I wish I had, a, I wish I had it so I could put, pop it up on my screen and show it to you. Um, but I have this timeline that shows 2020. At the top, it shows what it's been like for the general population. At the bottom, it shows what, what it's been like for the black population. And this is the stuff that I'm doing now with CEOs and leadership teams. I show them that timeline so they understand the difference between the experience, right? So at the top, you have kind of lockdown, um, remote working, suddenly you have um, kind of financial implications and financial crisis and people losing jobs. You have COVID and deaths and all this other kind of stuff, which by itself, is horrific. Then you look at the at the what's happening, what's happened over the same period of time for Black people, and you layer on the ten or twelve Black people who've been killed on a, by a variety of of methods, um, starting with Ahmaud Arbery, who was the young man who was jogging through his community in Georgia, who was shot down by three vigilantes. Then Breonna Taylor, who was sleeping in her house, who um, she was an emergency medical worker. She was on the front lines of COVID. She was sleeping. The police came into her house. Um, like came without a, no warrant, they didn't knock. Plain clothes. Her boyfriend shot off a warning shot, and they shot her and killed her eight times. I mean, shot her eight times and killed her. Um, and this and what people have to understand. And for black people on this call, you'll really understand this. When something happened in our when happens in our communities, everybody knows about it, and everybody's impacted, particularly around injustice right? Everybody is impacted by it because it could be my son. It could be my daughter. It could be me. Um, and that's the way that you have to think about it. Because again, we're taught to navigate in a world that wasn't made for us. So when we see these things happen and we know that it could, it could be my husband, again, my son or me, um, it causes a, it's a it, 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 there's a lot of angst that you walk around with that you can't um, vocalize outside of our own community because nobody's ever been listening, frankly. Right. Folks will say, oh, that's terrible. But again, not listening enough to do anything. And so there was that. There was Breonna Taylor. There have been five black men in the United States who've been found hanged since May. Now, they've all been found hanging in public places. And, you know, they were immediately ruled suicides. But they weren't because the families were like, this is not you need to investigate this. This person was not suicidal. And if you know anything about suicide, which I hope you don't, you'll know that 
people who to commit suicide tend not to do it in public places, like hanging in front of a city hall, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of things like that, which have been really challenging, right? And then we just had three days ago, a black man called Jacob Blake, who is the next hashtag, who was shot seven times in his back by a police officer. He was breaking up a domestic, a domestic fight between two women. Um, something happened, I don't know, but he walked away. The police came, he walked away. He's like, oh no, I'm leaving. He walked away to go get in his car with his children and the police tried to pull him out of his car and shot him in his back seven times, right? He's now paralyzed and waist down, he wasn't killed. But every time this stuff happens, um, it's really painful. So when you talk about those two timelines, what it's been like, I talk about that. It's often shocking because folks don't really recognize it. And I think also don't recognize that when you affront, when there's injustice, against people of color, black people and people of color, um, we all feel it because it could be any of us. And, and that emotional tie is hugely important. In addition to the fact that- oh, India, let's role play that. I'm the CEO, I'm listening to this. I've got my group and you're, you're telling us this and we're all shocked. But India, what do we do next? And, and this isn't us in our organization. We're not in that particular space. This is terrible, but you know, we're, we're just running a business here and trying to do the right thing. How do you get me now over the level to go and now translate that to say the, the bias that's working in my organization is still prevalent? So I'll say and two things. What do I do to fix this? <laughs> One is it's a process. Like it's not a, like just doing the timeline isn't the thing that shifts, right? I spend a lot of time with these people getting them to that. That's just kind of one thing. But it is shocking to see because most people don't even have that level of consciousness around what's happening for other people um, yeah. right now. So I say that's one thing. Um, how you get, how you, it, and it's also, it is up to you, right? And it is your people who have privilege and people who are in positions of power are the only ones who can make the shifts, right? So when you think about, you know, all of the changes happened through history, right? In terms of, kind of black empowerment and black people being able to move at all. Um, it's been because white people in power have helped it to happen. They have, black people haven't done it by themselves and couldn't because we weren't in positions of power to do it then and aren't in positions of power to do it now, to be frank. Um, because the, all of the economic ownership is still with white people around the world, frankly. And so um, a part of this is also understanding that through history, when you think about slavery in the U.S., the abolitionists who abolished slavery were white people. They weren't black people, right? So, so if the changes are going to be made, it's going to take white people to make them, even still, because, again, of the, of the kind of power structures that exist. So when you're trying to get a CEO to be engaged in this, you also want them to understand that this, I'm not talking just about people out here in the street. These are your employees. This is what your employees are facing. So you expect them to come into work with a happy face and do the work that they need to do while experiencing all of this. How do you expect that to happen? Right? How do you expect people to be able to, and we have had to, like we've had to suppress that. So we've had a lot of pressure, societal pressure, all the time, but still have to come in and perform just like everybody else. And people have the same expectations of us, the so people who have none of those barriers, right? And none of that emotion, none of that worry. I have to think about being black every day, every day that I wake up, and this is no exaggeration, and I step out into the world. Like right now, I'm in the country, right? I'm, my husband and I drove up to a restaurant yesterday. We looked into it. We were like, mm, probably not a good idea and left, right? I have to think about that every single day. And White people don't have to think about walking through the world as white people every single day. And so your employees have to do that. And that is huge, right? Because they're having, they're carrying 15 things before they even step in the door. You don't see it because we're taught how to navigate, but they feel it. So CEOs are often shocked when they hear that, right? I play a video um, about the, they, we call it the talk. 
And it's a talk that every single black parent in America and probably around the world to some extent, and I would suspect it happened in South Africa for sure um, earlier in your, in your history um, and maybe even still now. But um, we have this conversation about the talk where we tell, talk to our children from the age of six or seven years old around what to do if they're stopped by the police. Like, what, this is what you do. You need to make it home to me. And every single black parent has this conversation with their kids, everyone. And when CEOs are recognizing that all their staff are actually having to have this conversation with their children, and I play a video which shows the children, like there's a little girl who's six or seven years old and she puts her hands up and she says, I'm Ariel Sky Williams and I have nothing that will hurt or harm you. She's six or seven years old, you know, and, but that's real. And that's the conversation that we have. Every, I have three children. I've had the conversation with all of them. So that emotional connection, right, is the thing. Because when people start recognizing all of the things and then, you know, you kind of layer them. And again, it takes me a long time to go through all of these things, right, and get people to understand them. But when they do, they're like, oh my gosh. So basically you're telling me my, my staff are having to do this every day? Well, yeah, right? And then you talk, think about a lot of the other things. And that was just like two examples, which are horrific enough. But there are a whole bunch of others too that are at the realities of what black people and people of color face um, every single day just by virtue of the color of their skin. So what, what do we do next? I'm uh, even more shocked now. Now I see is the kind of uh, CEO analogy here, um, how devastating this is and, and how I want to do something now. You've, you've turned me. I realize that we haven't been really doing anything at all here in that space. And certainly, what do I do next? So this is the thing. You can't, people can't solve entire systems by themselves. I mean, that's, that's the hard thing, right? You can't sol solve an entire system by yourself. But what you can do is start to make the shifts that need to be made. So, you know, pick your thing. I always tell people, don't try to do everything. Pick your thing. What's the thing that your heart bleeds for? Like, what, what is your thing and what is your cause? Like, I talked about mine being women and children and educational equity. That's where I focus all my time, other than, obviously, the racial equity stuff that I'm teaching. But, like, my personal cause is that. And so I do work around that. I, I advocate. I go out and I do things. I get involved in groups that are trying to figure it out. I mean, like, so the issue is energy, right, around these issues. So you have to find the one, the thing that drives you, and you have to focus your energy on it. And if everybody kind of does that, then you start to see momentum. But you have to do something that your heart bleeds for or it won't work long term, right? It's not sustainable. If you, do, you get emotional in the moment because you hear about something, you're like, that's awful, I'm going to do that. But if it's not what your heart really doesn't bleed for, then you should need to think about what that is. And I say what your heart bleeds for because, again, the emotional connectivity is really important when you're thinking about how you might um, engage in whatever the cause is that you're interested in around this particular issue. But the other question, the other thing is even before you do that, talk to black people you know and ask them about their experiences. Not how can I help, not how can I support. I really want to understand your experience. And I counseled a couple of CEOs that I had to um, to invite, do a roundtable with their black employees. I said, just get like 10 people and bring them in a room and ask them to tell you about what their experience has been overall, and then ask them to tell you about what their experience has been inside of your organization. That's a starting point. Because without fear of retribution, right, understanding that, again, people are more reticent to talk about something that is tied to their livelihood unless you create the safe space for them to be able to do it. <clears throat> and if you can step to someone and say, listen, I just want to understand your experience because I can't solve for something I don't understand. Right. And so asking people that you'll know really quickly what you need to do when you start hearing the experiences that people have who are closer to you that you can kind of touch and feel yourself. When they have those discussions or when you go and facilitate these discussions, 
What sort of answers uh, typically come out about what they do find in the workforce? Um, so I can give you some really good themes. One is invisibility. People feel like they're not seen and not heard. That they will raise ideas, for example, and the, ne the white person next to them will raise the same idea later and it will be taken as, the, as a great idea. Um, that there's no kind of acknowledgement of the challenges they face externally to the organization because you can't separate the two. You think, I mean, it's not like you walk into your organization and suddenly it's like being in the, in Oz or something like, you know, some wonderful paradise. You don't, you can't separate the two. What, what your experience is outside of work is what you bring into work. And that's what you step in with. Um, that they don't feel that they're, when you look at rates of promotion, I mean, like almost all of, and I would say 98% of the work that I've, audits that I've done, um, with organizations around the advancement of black people and people of color, it's way down. The, I mean, they're way off, way off of the numbers of people they have in the organization in turn, if you do a like-for-like like comparison of people who are moving through. Why is that, right? So feeling left out and feeling um, looked over. Um, even having people make racist comments to them, right? And people are always shocked, like, somebody said that to you? Well, yeah. But so what did you do? Well, nothing, because I'm not in a position of power. And often when you go to HR to have these conversations, they'll say, well, I'm sure they didn't mean that. And that's, and that's another thing that I hear quite a lot, right? That, that there is the, well, I'm sure they didn't mean it, which says you don't believe me. So on top of all that, you don't believe when I tell you I'm experiencing racism. And I can tell you this, people who have lived in racist spaces really understand when things are happening to them. They, they know when it's happening. Like take it from the experts, people who have dealt with it their entire lives, that when something's happening that's racist, they generally know. You know, folks will say, well, how do you know it's this? You know what, I've been living it for 50 years, I can tell you, when I'm experiencing when I'm not, generally, right? Obviously there are some nuances to that, but most of the time they do. So when somebody tells you they've experienced something, believe them, because they know, they can tell you. So those are the kind of themes that have emerged. Um, when I've had these conversations. And I think for CEOs, again, it's not that folks don't care. They just don't know. So when they hear it, they're like, what? You know, what? this happened here? You know, and people don't really, because it's so outside of their frame of reference and they've never experienced anything like that themselves, that, um, that it's a, a bit of a shift. And, and that I find that having those conversations with people and asking them about their experiences is probably the most powerful one when people actually tell you in your own organization what they've dealt with. So what sort of systems, I mean, you mentioned it before, what sort of systems and frameworks do we start to now put in place? Because I've with everything in an organization, they feel messy, but it is the systems written or unwritten, which drive the success or failure of any organization. Um, and let's go through some that, you know, you think are helpful to try to go and actually equalize across the board. So I'll just kick off with the first, the most common. What's your view on things like quotas? Um, I think they're fine. I mean, this is the thing. So I'm going to talk about my equity versus equality thing now, right? Okay, because that's, that's, that's an important frame here. So people often use the terms equity and equality interchangeably, but they're two very different things. So equality is kind of our nirvana. That's where we want to be in the future. We want equality where everybody's equal, which is great. Um, equity is essentially the road to get to equality. Um, and I always give the example, um, equi so equality would be giving everybody the same size shoe. So I'd give you a size 10, I'd have a size 10, he'd have a size 10, she'd all, you know, all 15 of us have a size 10 shoe, but I wear an eight, right? So a 10 doesn't really help me. 
equity is giving people the right size shoes for what they need, right? So that would be, so that means giving me an eight, giving you a 10, giving her a, a five, giving him a whatever. It's giving people the right size shoes. And another example of that is I have three children, six month old, six months old, 11 years old and 12 years old. We're all gonna have dinner. So I, I bring a baby chair, a push chair, a high chair to the table for my six month old. Do I need to give my 11 year old and 12 year old a high chair? No because they don't need one. I'm giving the person who needs the, what they need to be able to participate fully. When that child gets older, or when I give them the high chair until such time they don't need it anymore. So it's, it's giving people what they need to be able to participate fully. Last example, you have three boxes, right? And you have a fence. There's a great graphic that I have that demonstrates this. Um, and you have a really tall person, you get, have all the same size three boxes. You have a really tall person who's standing on the box and seeing, you know, like, let's call them, you know, eight or 10 inches over the fence. You have a little girl who's basically peering, just kind of just almost getting over the fence. She's on the same size box. And then you have a person who's in a wheelchair, a disabled person who can't see anything at all. In the next graphic, you have the tall person doesn't need a box. You don't give them a box. The little girl has, uh, has two boxes she, so she can see over and there's a ramp for the disabled person because that's what they need. So equity is about giving people what they need. So when you think about quotas and all those kind of, and, and those kind of things, yeah, if that's gonna get us to a point where folks have what they need for a period of time until they're able, then yeah, do it, right? So it's about, and sometimes you have to tip the scales to do that for some period of time. It's not taking something away from somebody else. It's giving the person who needs it what they need in that moment. Right. And so I, I don't have any issue with quotas or whatever it might be. Um, and that doesn't mean that you sacrifice quality. You know, you don't have to sacrifice quality. It means that I you just ask on the quotas, whether that's the same in all regards. So we talked, well, you mentioned at the start about, you know, perhaps the biggest problem is just on the recruitment cycle. That's where, you know, the biggest disadvantages do occur. What about later on, you know, 10 years later, are we talking quotas as well to get the board positions and the exco positions? Yeah, no doubt. Because that's where it gets even thinner and thinner, right? Often at the most junior levels of organization, you have the, the bigger numbers of, you know, ethnic populations. The higher you go, the less it gets. So, yeah. How do you, how do, you deal with that, India, though? Because that also creates some backlash, doesn't it? Because you start to have this attitude being thrown around. They only got there because of the quota system. Um, and actually, I've heard a lot of people that... Um, who have now got to very successful positions who've been black or Indian or female, who themselves have said... I feel a bit frustrated because it, it's so in some ways I'd have preferred there wasn't the system there because now people are saying that, that it was the quota that helped me get there. The first thing is I don't care what anybody says. Like, like you can't really care what anybody says. You can, if you want to, but I choose not to. Um, and, and let's talk about fairness, right? Let's talk about fairness is not taking people from their country and enslaving them for 250 years and then, you know, and essentially making them work for free. That's not, so we don't want to get into a conversation about fairness. Fairness is, think about apartheid in South Africa. Let's talk about fairness. So fairness is not something you really want to compare when you're talking about this, because this is now about how you ensure that people who've been previously prohibited, not, not because they didn't want to, prohibited from participating in society, now have that place. And that there may be things you need to do to ensure that um, to ensure that they're able to, right? And that might mean quotas. And I don't, like, I didn't, it's, if somebody put me in for a quota, I wouldn't care. Like if I got in because of a quota, I wouldn't care because I can do the work, right? It's about, as long as I have the capability of doing the work, then I don't care if somebody's mad because they think I got in because of a quota because I'm there and I'm doing the work really well. I, I didn't, 
frankly, there weren't quotas where I was. And so it was even crazier for me to be able to navigate and, be, and get to the level of organization that I have or that I did. Um, it was hard and it was horrific. And it was, there were two different occasions where I dealt with overt racism and had to, you know, leave organizations, frankly, um, proven, not just things I said. Um, and so I just, I, I'm stuck on the word fairness because I think about what it took for me to be able to climb the ladder that I did. And I don't think it should have to be that hard. So it's not hard for other people. So why should it have to be hard for us? Right. And so making it a little bit easier for us to be able to move into spaces where we've been prohibited. And it's extremely hard for us to move through considering all the things I talked about societally, I think should be done without question. But again, you have to understand what that feels like for people and be able to create that emotional connectivity and understand those stories so that you understand why you're doing it. Because it, because it go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Just, no, fine. I, just, I wish we'd set this call up for two hours. We've only got 15 minutes left and I keep forgetting to go and look at the questions coming in. From Sorry, guys. Uh, but there's two that I want to read out. India, have you ever called people out for being racist or acting on their bias and how did it go? What was the result? Um, I have, but I, you know, I also... So for bias, it's different than what you would, what the, the conversation you'd have with somebody who's being overtly racist, right? Um, and often people who are being overtly racist, they know what they're doing, right? So, so to some extent, it's kind of a futile conversation to be having. People who have bias is very different. And I've never called anybody out for having bias publicly because it's unconscious typically and folks don't know and often, again, don't understand and haven't had the experience to understand some of it. So where I've experienced bias, I usually try to lead with kindness because I think it's important. Like, I don't think that, you know, if you're attacking people for things they really don't understand that they're even doing, it's hard to even have the conversation. So I've had conversations with folks where I've said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Just kind of pulled them to the side and said, listen, something you said really bothered me or something that I witnessed really bothered me. I'd like to talk to you about it. Um, and it's embarrassing and hard for people, right? But it's better when you pull somebody off to the side and you do it privately and talk about the impact to you as opposed to the judgment that you're making about what they said or did. Okay. Um, okay. I'm just gonna, can you repeat that again? Because I think that's so powerful. And 99% of people, myself included, get that wrong in the workspace. You when mean you've got racial bias? You can't just go and, and pick on them and, and blame them and, and challenge them. Your wording was just so eloquent on that. Yeah. So let me see if I can say it again. <laughs> You're challenging me. Um, but I, no. I'll get it. I'll get it. Um, what I was saying is that you have to be, you have to lead with kindness, right? All the time when, when you're having these conversations. And I know that as a black person, life hasn't always been kind to me, but I choose to lead with kindness because that's the best place to start a conversation. So when there's bias, um, I will pull somebody to the side. I don't do things publicly because, you know, it's hard enough as it is. We talk about race being hard conversations or biases being hard as they are. Doing that in front of other people doesn't solve the problem because it just makes people feel, feel defensive, right? But if I can take you to the side and say, you know, something that I heard you say bothered me or really upset me or it impacted me because, um, and I make it about me, and how it's impacted me instead of making judgment about the what, understanding that it was unconscious, um, you tend to get much better outcomes. And I've had a lot of those kind of conversations. Um, but, I, but like I said, the racist, racist ones, I'll just be like, you're being racist. And I, I, I can't even, I don't even get into those because those end up being arguments because folks sometimes are so far over there 
that, um, that they're not ready to have the conversations. And they're not hopeless, but there are so many more people who want to have the conversations but that don't know how, that those are the ones I focus on, frankly. Mm. What's uh, another, one of the other questions, how do you get through to people who believe that these kinds of discussions or transformation initiatives are basically just anti-white campaigns? Um, I mean, it's great to think that, but again, it's hard to have campaigns against the people who are in power and who own everything. I mean, like, you know, people are not, people are not trying to be anti-white. What they're trying to, to have is equity. They want to live a good life. They want to have housing. Like, you know, you look at the disparity in housing in all of the Western world, right? The disparity in housing between people of color and black people and white people, you know, disparity in education, depending on the community you live in. What people want is access to all of the same things in the same way. And it's not about not working for it, right? It's that some people have more privilege than others. And I work, it may work as hard as you, but you might make, you know, four times the amount that I do um, because of, of your privilege and where you were born, which is not your fault, right? So how some, you know, privilege isn't somebody, anybody's fault. Right? It's a system of advantages, which have, which have been in place for, again, centuries and decades. So privilege isn't anybody's fault, but because of the system of advantages that creates, it gives you a lot more than somebody else might have. But why? Why is it that that's the case? And, and the disadvantage that Black people and people of color have had have unfortunately, you know, and realistically been at the hands of white people. And so it is hard when you're experiencing all the things that I talked about sometimes to be able to not have an emotional feeling about that, right? Not having an emotional feeling about the fact that, you know, as a black person, my husband can get stopped anytime. And he's been stopped five or six different times. My husband has his own company. He's a university educated person. He, you know, he, he's an upstanding citizen, never been arrested. None of that kind of stuff. Like most people. Well, you know, he's been stopped several times by the police. How do you not get emotional about that? Right? How do you not feel away? How do you not want to fight that if it's happening to you? So it's not about anti-whiteness. It's about leveling the playing field for people who don't have the, that system of advantages. I know that was a very long answer. Sorry about that. Well, it, it, that's, <laughs> that's fine. Let's see how you get on with this one. This one um, I'm fascinated by and, and I'm just going to ask it. Do you, have you ever been um, biased racially in your career towards white people perhaps? Yeah, no, no. Um, I can say that very openly, no. And that is because I knew what it felt like. And I would never put somebody else through what it felt like for me. Um, and because of what I experienced, I was very, 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 very careful to ensure that my teams are really diverse. So did I ensure that Black people and people of color had the same opportunities? A hundred percent. Did I not hire white people or ensure that white people had those opportunities? Absolutely not. I wouldn't have done that. Um, but I made sure that my teams were really diverse and really reflected the organization that I was in from the top to the bottom, as opposed to, you know, it kind of thinning out <laughs> as it went up. Um, have I ever felt angry towards white people? Yes. I can tell you that for sure. Um, have I, and, and partially because you know, in the United States, for example, there, and probably, I don't know what the numbers are in, in South Africa, but in the United States, a thousand black people are killed per year by the police. A thousand per year. That's like what, a hundred a month? So, you know, have I ever been mad because white people haven't done anything until George Floyd was killed on television? Yeah, I have. Have I ever been frustrated because I really, the people who I work with who are my friends, I really hope would stand for me and with me? Yes, I am. But our society has created something that's made that very hard to do. 
history has made that very hard to do. So do, that, do I blame them? No. Am I angry? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question. And, and it's hard walking through life like that, right? But again, I've had to navigate it for 50 years. So it's not changing. I mean, it hasn't changed till now. This is the first time in my entire life I can remember being able to have conversations as openly about race as I'm able to have now. And I'm grateful for it because it has taken so much pressure off that people are finally listening to what it has felt like for me. And understanding that for me, as a fairer complected black person, it's very different than what it's like for people who are darker complected black people and what they experience, because it's even worse for them. Mm. What's uh, a couple of the chats that are coming through, I mean, and this is a very South African context, I, I mm. think it's, well, perhaps let's rephrase that, it's, it's more prevalent in South Africa, is this concern that by being diverse and trying to bring your workforce up to 70, 80, 90%, you know, black, Asian, etc., cetera, um, you may put pressure on your organization's ability to actually perform to the level your shareholders want because of the disadvantages that those communities have had. It's difficult to find people with the necessary skills and knowledge and potential. Do, do you see the way that um, South African companies have to deal with this versus say in the US where the education system is a lot broader um, to be fundamentally different? And, how, how, and what can or should South African companies do to try to go and equalize at that educational level and the introductions into organizations? Oh, well, actually though, it isn't that different, to be honest. We have some areas, a lot of areas in the United States of extreme poverty. I think something like 60% of black kids in the US live under the poverty level in the US, or un living under the poverty, poverty line. So it's not, you know, to be honest. Yeah, you have a different problem because you're talking, you're in a country where the majority population is black, right? I'm in a country where the majority population is white and we're just trying to at least get, you know, in the door. Um, so, so I think we've got a bit few different. minutes. Let me tighten the question. Um, mm -hmm. What should companies, what responsibility do you think companies have to try to help solve this? We can't, there's a yeah. whole different discussion about government and education systems and tax mm -hmm. systems, you know, mm -hmm. you've gone forever on that. But against that backdrop, what can companies do and that should they be doing to try to help equalize that? Here it's the equity play, I guess, to do more to try to go and, you know, to bring equity into those environments so that we've got equality in the workforce. Okay, so there are two things, right? That corporations need to be part of their communities, right? And they have to help as much with the, with the, with the bank and pockets they have, they also need to participate and not leave it to government to do the work in terms of, of helping communities move up the scale, right? They need to go and invest in the communities that they say they want to support and, and stop talking about, stop leaving it to external folks to do that. Oh, it's just about our shareholders. Actually, it's not because you'll never solve the problem in your country. And that's in my, this country too, unless the people with the money who are the corporations also help and contribute to, the, to those communities. That's the first thing. The second thing is when you're thinking about that flip, you can't make, it's not going to happen immediately, right? That 70, 80%. Should it happen at some point? Absolutely. Because I mean, it has to be, in, it should be in line with the population. I mean, that's just kind of some, that science is it's stats. Now, finding the people is, an, is another thing, right? Completely acknowledge that. And also acknowledge that you may not be able to um, completely get there because the, the lag between creating the equitable community, which gets people ready to be able to do that so that you have a, more of a pipeline. I don't buy the no pipeline thing. I don't buy hard to find thing. Don't buy that at all. Um, 
because it's not true in the first instance. However, there does come a point at which the numbers do kind of outpace the lag without question. But in the first instance, there are people out here doing this stuff now, right? And there are folks out here who are educated who aren't getting the same opportunities. So first is kind of like make sure that you're checking yourself on how you're hiring and where you're looking for people because you make an assumption that because somebody didn't go to this university, but because they went to that university, that they're better. And that it may not be true. That person might be at that university because that's what they could afford to do based upon proximity or whatever it is, has nothing to do with their capability. So it's about assessing people for their capability and, and not necessarily just because they went here, right? That wipes a whole bunch of people off the map to start with. So well, the, I think that's really interesting. Assessing them for their, their potential, their capability, isn't something that most organizations, I think, do particularly well. They're, they're far too stuck in looking at the ticket box, went to the primary universities, they're from Oxbridge, it means this and, and so on. India, I had to interrupt because what I want to do now, and we've only got five minutes left, is two things simultaneously. Let's see if I can actually do this. The first is I'm going to launch another poll. Um, really fascinated to see what results come back on, on that one. It's going out to you all now. And then secondly, I'm going to invite uh, Ian, Ian Roy, to come in and help close out the session for us. Ian, where are you? Here he is. Ian. Oh, thanks, Colin. Thanks very much, uh, India. Um, really, really appreciate that uh, that time, my goodness, the, the hours certainly flown by, and and a topic which is very prevalent in in the world, um, and obviously very prevalent in in our society, and um, and something which we need to take ownership of. I think you've made that quite clear. Um, something struck me that that I think is fantastic, and and I'll I will take out of this hour is that um, the notion of lead with kindness for me uh, is is a great bit of insight that that I think you brought to us today amongst many others, uh, I will say. But uh, suffice to say, um, thank you everybody who has participated in, in today. And, and India, thank you very much for giving up your time and for your incredible insights. Uh, it's been fantastic. Colin, thank you very much for facilitating um, a topic that I guess, uh, you know, one hour doesn't do justice to uh, this topic and, and certainly something that we should spend a lot more time uh, talking about. Um, so thank you for that. A shout out to and a special mention to our customers that have joined us uh, without uh, in, uh, explicitly trying to leave some out, but to mention a few uh, customers, Sassel, um, some partners in Mimecast, Bayport, Nashua, Netcare, UCT. So really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us. Uh, just an, uh, an insight to next week, uh, we'll talk to our group CEO, Stephen Van Koller. Um, just about some of the decisions he's had to take in transforming uh, EOH um, and expand on the leadership approach that, that he took. So I'm no doubt uh, that there'll be some honest, robust discussion in that one, Colin. So I look forward yeah. to that. Um, but uh, the success of this series wouldn't be possible without the likes of yourself, India. Again, thank you, Colin. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and to all those that, uh, that participate. Thank you very much. And we, we really appreciate it. Back to you, Colin. Thanks very much, Ian. So let's share the results of the poll so you all get to see that. Having listened to India, I believe my organization can do more. I should have put much, 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 much more um, mm. if they're like organizations I've worked for in the past, reduce racial bias. Um, India, where can people get hold of you? Because listening to some of the people on the call, the organizations they work for, I suspect there's going to be many that would like to reach out to you and to further these conversations in a multitude of different dimensions. What's the easiest way to them to get you? 
I always tell people to contact me on LinkedIn and follow me on LinkedIn because I'm always publishing about this stuff. Um, but LinkedIn is probably best. It's under India Gary, G-A-R-Y Martin. You can find me there. Um, or you can always go to my website, which is www.leadershipforexecs. That's an F-O-R as opposed to the number. Leadershipforexecs.com. And that's yeah. it. Thank you very much to everyone that's joined us. Thank you. We'll see you again in a week. I wish it was two hours. And of course, if you've got feedback, uh, please just reply to the mailers that you've got with the invites. Um, if you've got ideas, what you'd like on future sessions, share the ideas, share any of your ideas. And of course, if there's things you don't like, share those too. We won't take it personally. But until next time, thank you very much. And thank you to IOKO for running this particular series. India, go back to your holiday. You were awesome. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming. And thanks for all your comments. Thank uh you. -huh.